Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is endogenous DMT. I'm talking about the most powerful known psychedelic that is internally generated in the body of all mammals. My guest is John Chavez, who is the founder and director of DMT Quest, a nonprofit organization focusing on raising money and awareness for endogenous DMT research. He is the producer of the documentary DMT Quest, and I'm going to link to that documentary right now if you have a proper computer so you can access this link in the upper right-hand portion of your screen you'll find it most worthwhile. John is also the author of the two-volume set of books called Questions for the Lion Tamer. John is based in California, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, John. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Dr. Mishlov. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I look forward to talking to you. Well, you've really focused on one of the most interesting problems in science, the fact that the most powerful entheogen or psychedelic or uh, there's so many different words for psychoactive drug known to man is naturally produced not only in the human body, but in all animals and in all kinds of uh, plants as well. Now, when I say all animals, I mean mammals. Yeah, it's an interesting phenomena that um, has not been fully deciphered yet. Um, we've known about endogenous DMT for probably about 50 or 60 years now. Uh, there were studies that took place in the 70s that were very inconclusive regarding uh, whether DMT was involved in psychiatric disorders. So, but since then, there hasn't been much research in regards to endogenous DMT and the naturally producing, um, I like to call it the endowaska system because what's interesting is that while most of the focus is on endogenous DMT, uh, in the mammalian system and possibly in the human system, uh, there's actually an endowaska system that's even more complex. So the, the term endowaska is der derived from ayahuasca. So ayahuasca is, a uh, is a brew, uh, utilized by the shamans in the, in the Central American jungles that combines Psychotria viridis and uh, the B-capi plant. So the B-capi plant is monamine oxidase inhibitor, allowing the DMT and the Psychotria viridis plant uh, to have oral activation. So the, what I'm getting at is that the endowaska system, the body actually produces multiple components that uh, can be, I guess, considered an analog to the psychedelic brew ayahuasca. The human body produces not only NNDMT, but also 5-methoxy-DMT, which is considered to be the God molecule, 5-hydroxy-DMT, uh, which is bufotenine, and a host of monamine oxidase inhibitory uh, chemicals such as harmine, uh, neurocadin, tribulin, and uh, a few others that I can't think of right now. But yeah, the body seems to be prime, and it seems as though... I. 
when it comes to biology, it seems that there's reasons why we produce certain things. And I think that for whatever reason, the human body seems to be uh, optimized to have these sort of mystical experiences in a way. Let's talk about the MAO inhibitor portion of the ayahuasca brew for a while. What you're suggesting is that if you take DMT orally, you need to have the MAO inhibitor in order for uh, the, the DMT to be activated. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. So if you were to eat the Psychotria viridis plant that contains DMT, uh, there would be no effect because your body produces an enzyme uh, called monamine oxidase. So that's why in the ayahuasca brew, you have the mono, monamine oxidase inhibitor so that the DMT can remain orally active. I, I see. So that's really interesting because somehow the uh, shamans in South America who, who developed the ayahuasca brew uh, possessed a very sophisticated knowledge of biochemistry to make all that happen. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, you know, some of the shamans have even discussed that, uh, they've got, I guess, insights from beings in regards to how to come up with their ayahuasca brew. So at this point, with the complexity of the plant kingdom, uh, we might have to take their word for it. You've raised a very important issue when you use the word beings. Uh, and I, I might mention parenthetically that you and I were together in England just a few weeks ago uh, at a conference on uh, DMT. And as I recall, the the theme of the conference had to do with sentient beings. And it's almost, uh, well, I don't want to say universal. It's very widely reported that People who experience ayahuasca and in particular DMT often encounter in, in their visionary experiences what appear to be autonomous beings, autonomous, you could call them spiritual entities. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the big question um, with the symposium that we attended was whether it's just purely hallucinatory phenomena of the mind based on the, you know, the chemical ingestion or whether these beings actually exist outside of our strict neurochemistry, I have a feeling that maybe it's both. You know, it's possibly a little bit of both and all of the above and a little bit more. I mean, that's one of the major issues, well, not only in the use of DMT, but it's actually a, a big issue for parapsychology in general, the whole question of uh, non-physical entities. Absolutely. I think the, the field of parapsychology is, is intriguing for many reasons, but I think one of the most intriguing reasons is because it can possibly help answer whether the psychedelic experience is merely taking place within the brain. You know, I tend to think that based on all the evidence uh, purported by parapsychologists across the world for many decades, that it's much more complex than just neurochemistry. I know one of your missions is to raise money for research on endogenous DMT. And, uh, of course, it's, it seems to me that we're experiencing something of a renaissance of interest uh, at this period of time. But, but for a long time, since President Nixon signed a, a, a bill back in the 1970s regulating psychoactive substances, uh, research was shut down. And even today, during what we call uh, a renaissance, the research is still very limited. 
Yeah, it is, especially exploratory research. So there's a lot of money being put into psychedelic research regarding things that can be patented and marketed and, and all of that in terms of business. But in terms of pure exploratory research for, you know, human knowledge, society to progress in terms of our understanding of reality, that's still, you know, we still have a long ways to go in terms of that. So Yes, I have a deep focus in trying to reach as many people as we can in order to fundraise, especially for endogenous DMT and endowasca research. I think that uh, that's been a very underserved field. Uh, even in the past 40 years, we're talking about four decades, uh, the endowasca research has been less than 200,000, which is completely uh, ridiculous when we're talking about trying to understand the deeper meaning of life and the human experience as a whole. So. Yeah, that's that's a big focus of of DMT Quest uh, now and going forward indefinitely is fundraising for this field, making sure that the researchers and the scientists that want to study this can study this, and um, really progressing the field forward as a whole and even periphery fields of research, not just endogenous DMT. Well, one of the fascinating points that you've made is that parapsychology my field of of interest is also like dmt research something of a fringe discipline maybe even more fringe there are many people who would say it's a pseudoscience and doesn't deserve to be studied at all because there's nothing there but you seem to suggest that maybe research on dmt would be a way to introduce the paranormal into the realm of physical sciences absolutely i think communication is key um, in terms of where is your starting point when you're talking about mysticism and does it make people, does the initial starting point induce cognitive dissonance where somebody kind of just turns off, eyes are glazed and they stop listening? Or is it a starting point that can engage the conversation and incrementally progress into a deeper understanding? And that's really where I feel is there op there's an opportunity uh, to start the mystical conversation with DMT. It's already been there. So that narrative has kind of taken a life of its own. Ever since Rick Strassman came out with his book in the year 2000, uh, discussing the potentiality of DMT and the pineal gland and mystical experiences, uh, 22 years later, it's almost just taken a life of its own, where you have a lot of people in society kind of like just speaking about these things like, oh, DMT near-death experience, DMT meditation. So it seems as though there is a narrative that's kind of there, and we can build from that in order to incrementally showcase some of the anomalies uh, studied in parapsychology that, you know, from my understanding, my own experiences, it seems as though a lot of this stuff is legitimate and it just needs to be presented in a grounded, rational way incrementally for society to understand it. It does seem to me that one of the risks is that people will take the findings of DMT research and then say, oh, yes, see, it all boils down to a chemical. A, and, and therefore, all the talk about near-death experiences, survival after death, mystical experiences is, is nothing more than a chemical reaction going on in, in the brain. And, and it sort of supports the physicalist reductionist view of reality. I think that's okay. I think it's okay for them to say that as long as um, there's sort of a, a pathway out of that, right? Because there's the limiting aspect of simply looking at brain activity 
and simply taking in this subjective experience. But, you know, if we want to do this incrementally, then we have to think of a way in which we can incrementally showcase the fact that consciousness is not always relegated to the physical brain. You uh, shared a lot of this information across the world for many years now. You know, I'm looking to go ahead and, and present it in a different way, in an incremental manner. You know, things like visualizations, right? Visualizations, in an essence, are conscious hallucinations. You're imagining something to take place, and for whatever reason, it's, it happens to have an objective effect on reality. So just to give you an example, like a visualization of a, a fire in your hand, if you spend five minutes really focusing on uh, envisioning the fire in your hand, it'll happen, have an objective change on the temperature of your hand. This has been shown, you know, in dozens upon dozens of studies. And it's not just heat. You know, if you envision an ice cube in your hand, it can get cold. So the concept is that we start to introduce these these ideas that our visualizations are conscious hallucinations and that they can have an effect on the objective reality. And when we're sticking within the body, somebody could say, hey, you know, that's just nervous system. You're altering your consciousness via your brain, and then you are sending your autonomic signaling to, uh, you know, change the periphery temperature. And that's all fine and dandy, and I think that's great. But, you know, incrementally, you can go further into that in terms of visualizations past the body and measuring whether there is a objective uh, effects taking place in either other objects or other uh, subjects. So at that point, you know, if you can showcase the fact that consciousness is not always relocated to the physical body, then it opens up the door for a lot of information uh, to pour in regarding uh, the paranormal, I think. Well, I think one of the most interesting aspects of the work you're doing is the relationship between exogenous and endogenous DMT. I mean, for the most part, people taking DMT in order to have a, a high experience, uh, an ecstatic, a mystical experience, people take ayahuasca or, or they some other form of, of DMT. And yet it is produced naturally in the body. So th that raises the question, what's it doing in the body? Yeah, that is a big question. And that was the focus of the 2000, the 2021 documentary, the first DMT Quest documentary, uh, focusing on the 2019 study that came out of the University of Michigan. Uh, the lead, lead author was Dr. John Dean. It was a groundbreaking study because they found that DMT is actually not produced only in the pineal gland of the mammalian system, but it seems to be produced throughout the brain. Uh, we're talking about the cortex, the choroid plexus, the hippocampus, as well as the pineal gland. So that was a groundbreaking finding to learn that DMT is actually produced throughout the brain, as well as DMT being produced at similar levels as serotonin and dopamine. So if we want to, I guess, give uh, importance to serotonin as a mood regulator and dopamine as a pleasure regulator, uh, the fact that DMT is produced at similar levels as those neurotransmitters uh, just leads to more questions about why is DMT being produced at these similar levels and how is it modulating our reality? Is it creating, I guess, uh, more uh, like brighter images, brighter imagery, moments of insight, things like that? These are questions that need to be answered because we have to remember uh, the DMT uh, conversation now is not solely about the mystical experience. It's about sub the subtleties as well. Um, just to go a little bit further, in Rick Strassman's uh, trial in the 1990s, 
he injected sub-psychedelic levels of DMT into some of the volunteers. And they described that experience as euphoric. Uh, one of the subjects had actually done heroin and compared the DMT to heroin. And we're talking about DMT at a sub-psychedelic level, meaning a non-visionary level. So there's the notion that there's the possibility of utilizing altered states techniques. And a lot of these altered state techniques uh, induce euphoria. And there could be an upregulation of endogenous DMT uh, at a more subtle level. Well, I think it's fascinating that in your documentary, you bring up the famous, um, I don't know what I'd call him, yogi athlete Wim Hof, who is known for feats of endurance, for example, swimming in ice cold water, and he trains other people to do it. He has a, a whole process, I think, must be many, many thousands of people, I assume, have gone through his training program. And he seems to suggest, and you seem to suggest along with him in the documentary, that his particular exercises are generating endogenous DMT that helps people with these extraordinary feats. Yeah, it seems like you know, based on my research, all altered states of consciousness can allow people to tap into their autonomic signaling. Uh, Wim Hof is a friend of mine, 26 Guinness World Record holder. He utilizes, uh, I guess, deep respiratory uh, practices and techniques in order to induce in his altered states in a mechanical level. What had happened is that once tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people have started to practice this technique, they started to have interesting experiences uh, the most common, I guess, claim is deep euphoria after 10 to 20 minutes of the Wim Hof method. But some people were reporting visionary experiences, mystical experiences similar to DMT or maybe at the, the slight onset of ayahuasca, not a full-fledged DMT experience, even though some people have been describing full-on uh, mystical experiences. And these are people that have done DMT and ayahuasca as well, so they have a, a way to compare both. But it seems as though the Wim Hof method, uh, it alters your brain waves at a similar, I guess, signature to the ayahuasca or DMT. It's not exactly the same, but in some preliminary data that we're looking at, uh, there is a, a difference in terms of the, the brain waves from baseline as similar to the psychedelic experience. So there's different ways to, to look at what's going on in terms of breath work. And obviously, Wim Hof's not the first one. Pranayama has been around probably for thousands of years. Then you have holotropic breath work. Stan Groff has been doing that for, for many decades. So respiration as a whole seems to be a, a key in one type of altered state that can induce a potentially endogenous DMT upregulation. And with regard to the brain waves, as I recall, you're referring specifically to the gamma wave frequency. It's relatively unexplored. We're talking about a 40 cycles per second frequency in the brain. Yeah, it's interesting because it is an emerging field in terms of neuroscience. Uh, the gamma wave hasn't really been studied until the 1990s or even the late 90s, really, based on... Um, the EEG equipment going into digital. So basically with analog equipment, they weren't capable of measuring above 25 hertz. So that kind of kept a lot of the neuroscience focus on the alpha wave and in between uh, delta and, and beta. But with the digital equipment um, emergence in the 90s, we were able to look at gamma waves. And it seems as though gamma 
the 40 hertz frequency. It's a faster frequency, and it's key in terms of consciousness. I spoke with uh, Jay Gunkelman. He's probably the one, one of the leading uh, EEG uh, technicians in the world, having seen over 500,000 scans. And he was stating that gamma is absolutely uh, key in terms of consciousness, and and it is a bandwidth that uh, you know coincides with certain states. So. Yeah, the, the faster frequencies do seem to happen from the Wim Hof method after 20 minutes. And, and people definitely describe euphoria, if not uh, visionary states as well. The brainwave research associated with DMT, are, are there any consistent findings there? It se- there seems to be. Uh, when it comes to DMT and ayahuasca, there seems to be alpha wave, which is interesting. Because there's been a lot of focus in the alpha wave in decades past in terms of meditation and things of that sort. But the alpha wave completely dissolves itself. And then you have a surge in the slower waves like the theta, uh, delta, and then also the surge in the gamma. And the gamma waves have been reported to uh, correlate specifically with the, the mystical experience. So the stronger the gamma wave, the stronger the mystical type experience that was uh, described by the uh, subject. So... Yeah, it's it's just an emerging it's emerging science, and it's not finalized yet. We still have a long way to go, but it seems as though uh, looking at these signatures of faster oscillations during the psychedelic experience in altered states is going to be uh, a really important field of research going forward. John, since you've already reported on research suggesting that the production of DMT in the brain is equivalent to the amount of active neurochemicals such as serotonin and dopamine in in the brain, that that would open up vast amounts of research funding. I, I imagine the funding uh, on serotonin and dopamine is pretty substantial. You would think so. Um, I, I think one of the important aspects in regards to garnering potential funding uh, for endogenous DMT research is showing high utility. So, not just focusing on the mystical state itself, but focusing on the, the other aspects of DMT that are more, I would say, grounded in science-based. Things like neurogenesis, the production of new brain cells, uh, neuroplasticity, the changing of new brain structures, the potentiality of upregulating this molecule to have a positive effect on neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. I think once we start to get into those fields of high utility and application to disease, that's when the more uh, mainstream and general funding is going to have a, a great interest in, in DMT research and in the potential of healing the brain in the process. You know, it's interesting is that uh, I believe it was about three or four months ago, there was a review regarding serotonin and there was some doubt being thrown on the importance of serotonin in terms of uh, modulating our mood and depression and things of that nature. And then it almost like it opens up a spot for DMT to uh, step in and potentially be looked at in terms of modulating mood. So, yeah, I'm hoping that we can create, I guess, a narrative that shows high utility for endogenous DMT and, and the potential for this research in order to garner more interest amongst the general mainstream uh, funding sources and the public at large. Well, let me ask you this with regard to the amount of endogenous DMT in the brain and nervous system, how does that amount compare to the amounts that are ingested 
either through ayahuasca or through people who ingest DMT through other means. I know there are several other means for ingesting exogenous DMT. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the exogenous levels are much, much higher. We're talking about thousandfold higher, things of that nature. But we have to remember that because DMT is produced throughout the brain, it's not just produced at the pineal gland and then uh, distributed throughout the brain. It's not like you're taking a substance and it's distributed throughout the system. DMT is produced locally at the neuronal site and released there. So it's not as though you're going to see a huge surge um, during meditation or things of that nature if DMT is being upregulated. So that's really where we have to uh, understand what we're looking at pharmacologically when you're taking an exogenous substance uh, and compare that to the endogenous system and how that works. It's two, I think, completely very different uh, modes of action. Let's talk about exogenous DMT uh, for a moment. My understanding is that People have a very intense rush, like in, in the research uh, of Rick Strassman, for example, who's been interviewed on this channel. And, and in fact, here, I'm going to link to the interviews with Rick Strassman uh, on this channel. People may find them interesting for those watching on a computer in the upper right-hand corner of your screen will be hot links there. But uh, to my understanding, even when it's injected through a needle, the experience is very short. It's very intense, but it may only last 10 minutes. Yeah, very short acting, gets cleared out by the body by monamine oxidase. And what's interesting is that the body doesn't produce tolerance for it. So somebody can have an experience, transformative experience that lasts for 10 minutes, and 20 minutes later, they can experience the same thing with the same amount. They don't build a tolerance. I've even heard the notion that the tolerance actually decreases as the, the more journeys go on. You know, somebody could take half as much and still have a full breakthrough journey. So, yeah, it's interesting, interesting things taking place in the DMT space for sure. I think that, um, the mainstream at large is not ready <laughs> for these conversations quite yet in terms of uh, I guess the visionary experiences being not just uh, hallucinatory phenomena, but you know we're we're priming the the public. We're trying to get them ready, you know, for for these deeper discussions about about these uh, experiences. Well, when you say mainstream, I think you're referring to academia because if we look at culture at large, it seems that the Interest is enormous and, and that uh, it's infiltrated into many, many levels of pop culture. As a matter of fact, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I think it was a week after you and I uh, left uh, England where there was a DMT conference, the Green Bay Packers, my favorite football team, played a game in England. And every time they scored a touchdown, the Packers football players did some sort of little routine to simulate what it was like taking ayahuasca because their star quarterback had publicly confessed to using ayahuasca. And I think he even went so far as to say that's how come he won the MVP, I think twice in a row, Aaron Rodgers. That's a very good point. Yeah, I am referring to mainstream academia. But yeah, the culture as a whole is definitely 
gravitating towards these altered states of consciousness, not just ayahuasca, not just DMT, not just psychedelics, but breath work and ice uh, exposure and all sorts of altered states. So I'm definitely, it's, it almost seems as though there's a slight disconnect in terms of the great interest amongst the general public and culture and then academic funding sources are, are kind of are lagging. So we need them to catch up so we can fund some cool research and and get uh, better information about what's going on during these altered states. I know when I, for example, first began practicing yoga some 50 years ago, it was considered very fringe and very odd. There weren't many yoga teachers around. And now it seems that there must be thousands and thousands of, of yoga teachers uh, in, in strip malls all over the country. Yeah, exactly. I guess things take time, right? The, the culture eventually catches up, eventually, the, you know, becomes more mainstream over time. But, you know, we need people like you, New Thinking Aloud, putting out these ideas, putting out the high quality research and discussions. So we have a good foundation to build upon. And I think that society is in a better place because of channels like yours. Well, that's very kind of you to say so, John. Let's go back for a minute to exogenous DMT. If you take ayahuasca, which is also, I mean, DMT is the main ingredient, I think, in ayahuasca. Those experiences can last five, six hours. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, uh, Dr. Mishloff, is that certain uh, shamanic tribes actually use, don't use any DMT in the ayahuasca. They only use the B-Cappy plant. And the, the thinking goes is that the B-Cappy plant has the monamine oxidase inhibitor in it. And if you take enough of it, then your body actually stops uh, breaking down the endogenous DMT within yourself. And you can have a full-on mystical experience without DMT, and you're just taking the monamine oxidase inhibitory plant. So absolutely, the, the ayahuasca phenomena has really taken off. And it's, you know, what's intriguing to me is that people are not only experiencing visionary experiences, but physical healings is an intriguing facet of that brew as well. So, yeah, it's just the opening up of the potential to heal, uh, you know, not just spiritually, but physically, which is, it's remarkable. I know that you've been looking at the relationship between endogenous DMT and uh, the near-death experience, which is, by all accounts, a very powerful mystical experience. Uh, that people experience when when they're, let's say, close to death, or some might even say clinically dead, and then revived somehow. But uh, the you you report a study with mice in in which the amount of endogenous DMT in the mice who were sacrificed rose dramatically, something like six hundred percent, as they were dying. Yeah, it was 600% increase in the visual cortex of the animals, which, you know, alludes to the notion that we're having a visionary experience, right? You're having a, a psychedelic increase sixfold in, in your visual cortex. It might contribute to a visionary experience of sorts. Once again, it points out to the potential for endogenous DMT to be the 
culprit when it comes to uh, mystical experiences that people have. But I, I'd like to go back, though, to the issue of why is it that when you inject pure DMT, the experience might last 10 minutes, but if you take an ayahuasca ex, uh, experience, it can last for hours. Is, is it the MAO inhibitor that makes the difference? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So the monoamine oxidase inhibitor inhibits the breakdown in your gut. But not only that, the the inhibition takes place systemically. So it's not as, it's not as just the action is only taking place in the gut. The monoamine oxidase inhibitor can um, provide a relief from the, the or not breaking down DMT in the brain as well. Even the endogenous DMT would not get broken down if you take monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So we have to realize that when you're taking ayahuasca, it's not just the DMT in the ayahuasca brew, but it's our endogenous DMT that's not going to be broken down as rapidly. So we're going to have these prolonged effects. Now, isn't it also the case that the MAO inhibitors are used as antidepressant uh, treatments already? Yeah, not exactly. I think in decades past, uh, even the pharmaceutical industry was big on using monoamine oxidase inhibitors. That was one of their targets for uh, antidepressants. For whatever reason, it fell out of favor, and then SSRIs and SNRIs took over. But absolutely, and you know, people have been describing antidepressant uh, effects of ayahuasca type plants for for a very long time. So, absolutely, yeah. Another question. Do you know if, if there's any kind of correlation at all between the effects of, of, of DMT? I, what I mean by that are the neurochemical effects of DMT and those of psilocybin, because I know psilocybin is also widely researched and uh, is reported to have antidepressant qualities. What it seems like preliminarily, uh, yes, you know, they activate the serotonin system. DMT seems to be a little bit more diverse in terms of the activation of receptors uh, compared to psilocybin, but very similar. The 5-HT2A receptor seems to be key in the mechanisms of action and inducing neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. So very similar. Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm thinking back now to research I was aware of back in the 1970s, when back in the days when I was a college student taking LSD. It seemed as if the LSD molecule was very similar to serotonin and, and would act, uh, it, it would reach those serotonin receptors in the nerve synapses instead of the serotonin. Uh, serotonin, I think, was thought to sort of be an inhibitor. And so, so it would disinhibit the inhibitor, was the thinking back in those days. Uh, is that still the way people look at it? That's a great question. Uh, Dr. Stephen Barker is probably one of the most knowledgeable DMT researchers in the world and has been for decades. And he stated to me that in the 19, I believe it was the 1980s or the 70s, where one of his lab mates uh, was going to produce a research paper, maybe his thesis. I'm not exactly sure right now, but they administered LSD to, to rats and they would uh, measure the effects of the LSD in the brains of the rats. And they found that after administration of LSD, uh, the levels of 5-MeO-DMT endogenously produced went up a 1,000%, and the levels of regular DMT went up 400%. Uh, 
So Barker was telling me about this unpublished study in light of stating that there's a possibility that LSD upregulates our endowaska system, and that's how it's in- inducing its effects. So he was saying because this research is not published, he can't state it that it's a definitive, but this is the type of research that we're looking to carry out in the future, in the near future, to get a better understanding of how these uh, psychedelics work and whether their mechanism of action is based upon upregulating our endogenous system as it is. Well, John, it seems as if you're doing very important work that the the notion that such a powerful drug is produced naturally in the body and, and yet it's so poorly understood just begs for more research to be done. And I think more than anyone else I know, you're pushing in that direction for that to happen. Yeah, I think that it's been a long time coming. I mean, 40 years, only uh, $200,000 in grants and loans and things like that to carry out this research is ridiculous. We have over 3,000 billionaires in the world, hundreds of thousands of hundred millionaires in the world. A lot of them have big questions about reality. We can't take that money when we die. So it seems as though there's an opportunity to really get uh, this field of intriguing research uh, funded. The public's been clamoring for it for decades now. Um, I just want to create a platform that, uh, you know, the world can know about in terms of, you know, potential funders know about us. And then we can uh, present the research that takes place from that funding in a layman's perspective via the documentaries in order to educate the public, create greater interest and create more funding opportunities for these researchers. You know, one of... um I spoke with Dr. Jima Borjigan at the University of Michigan. Uh, so she was the, uh, the neuroscientist in which all these studies took place that I'm citing. And she was stating that every year at the end of the school year, she has a line out the door out of her lab with young PhD students or young aspiring uh, PhDs that want to research endogenous DMT. And she stated that year after year, she has to turn them away because she has no budget. And I find that ridiculous, and it's um, I, I want to change that, and I think it can be changed. We're in an interesting time in human history to change that. So I think it's going to happen, and uh, I'll, I'll do whatever I can to make sure that it does happen. Well, I want to remind our viewers that in the introduction to this video, I posted a link to your documentary, DMT Quest. We'll also have a link to your website in the description of this video. And you seem to imply that you're working on a new documentary. Yeah, absolutely. So we're just working on the script for another film. I have a lot of films, um, I guess, in the mental space uh, regarding DMT Quest. You know, the way that we'd like to envision it going forward is to release a, a new film every three months, you know, with the proper funding. But not just the funding for the documentaries. We need the funding for the research. Ideally, we'd see eight to ten uh, DMT studies done every year that we can go ahead and report on in the documentaries. That's the goal, is to consistently just uh, create films and update people as to the latest research and, and the potential implications. And also tying in concepts of parapsychology as well. I want to be a full-spectrum uh, media production in terms of uh, what we cover. Well, it's very interesting, your, I'll call it a business model, to combine both documentary production with the funding of cutting-edge research, John. I believe you're doing very good work, very important work, and 
I want to thank you very much for being with me today on New Thinking Aloud. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Mitchell. It's an honor to be with you. You've helped me so much in terms of, you know, I had a, a mystical experience in 2000, was it 13? And ever since then, I've had a lot of questions and New Thinking Aloud has made a big impact on my life in terms of better understanding of the human experience. So I just want to say thank you for your work. You're very welcome. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Thank you.